Well, good morning. It's a joy to sing those songs, to reflect on those words this morning, to celebrate together the communion, the remembrance of the work that Christ has done on the cross. Our text this morning, as we return to our study in the Gospel of Matthew, takes us right back there yet again as we are reminded of the importance and the significance of this concept of forgiveness. We've been working through the Gospel of Matthew for quite some time and working through Matthew 18 for the past several weeks. We just finished looking at the framework that God has provided for rescuing those who are caught in sin, those who have gone astray. And as Jesus finishes this explanation to his disciples in Matthew 18, Peter asks a, really it's a rather famous question. If you've spent much time in the church or grown up in the church, it's about how frequently we should forgive another person, particularly for the same offense done repetitively. And what follows from that question is one of the most important explanations of forgiveness that we have in the New Testament. But before we look at it this morning, I want to give you a brief quiz. Chris Bronze, in his excellent work called Unpacking Forgiveness, he opens similarly, so I've I've stolen the idea from him, but I think it's helpful. I think it's helpful to orient ourselves to this concept of forgiveness. So if you have a sheet of paper or a bulletin, something, you're just going to, you only have to write down true or false. Made it about as easy of a quiz as possible. So even if you don't know the answer, there's a 50-50 chance of getting it right. First question is this, and this is self-graded, so you don't have to worry about what anybody else sees about it. But the first question is this, true or false, that most Christians agree about what forgiveness is and how it should take place. Most Christians agree about what forgiveness is and how it should take place. Number two, forgiveness is primarily a feeling that is private or individual that goes on within our hearts and minds. In other words, in the act of forgiving, it is primarily an individual act that goes on within our hearts and minds. True or false? Number three, forgiveness means there are no consequences or no further consequences. Fourthly, forgiveness is unconditional. True or false? Forgiveness is unconditional. Fifthly, and there's only two more. Fifthly, forgiveness is mostly about helping me get over bitterness and making me feel better. True or false? It's mostly about me and making me feel better, get past bitterness and anger. And sixthly, a willingness to forgive is a test of whether or not a person will go to heaven when he or she dies. A willingness to forgive is a test of whether or not a person will go to heaven when he or she dies. True or false? Now I will give you 
my answers to this same quiz. I quizzed myself. And then we're going to jump into this important text on forgiveness and hopefully more fully answer these questions and work through them in several different ways as we work over this text really over the next two weeks here. So I'll go and give you my answers. won't leave you in suspense this whole time. You may not like my answer, but bear with me as we work through the text together, and I'll try to show you why I believe this is what Scripture teaches. So one, most Christians agree that, about what forgiveness is and how it should take place. That's false. Many Christians disagree about the nature of forgiveness and what it is. And what about the second question? Forgiveness is primarily a feeling that is private or individual. It's something that goes on within my heart and mind. Again, my answer is false. Forgiveness is active. It's a commitment to pardon the offender. And it's something that happens between two or more parties. Thirdly, forgiveness means there's no future consequences. Again, I would answer false. Sin almost always has consequences, some of which are felt years after forgiveness and even reconciliation have begun. Fourthly, forgiveness is unconditional. Probably seeing a pattern here, false. This may be one of the hardest ones, and we'll work through it together, but... Forgiveness is not unconditional, as I think we'll see this morning. Fifthly, it's primarily about me and my bitterness and my anger and needing to, to really deal with that in my heart. Again, the answer is false. It's not what the primary purpose is. The primary purpose, as we'll see this morning, is the glory of God first and foremost. And then secondly... It's about relationship. It's about reconciliation. And in this context, primarily around brothers and sisters in Christ. And finally, a willingness to forgive is a test of whether or not a person will go to heaven when he or she dies. This is where I mess up the paradigm. True. My answer is true. Forgiveness is one of the most accurate barometers of whether or not someone is even a Christian. Now, again, you may not be satisfied with every one of my answers. If so, I've probably got you on the hook even more this morning. So let's turn to our text and see if we can begin to unpack the nature of forgiveness a bit more and see how well my answers and your answers align with what Scripture says. And we're going to read a little bit larger section this morning. We're going to read verse 21 of chapter 18 through the end of the chapter because I really want to begin setting this text in mind. I want us to have opportunity to meditate upon it this week as we return to this study again next Sunday. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, that's Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king 
who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had in repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of the slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground, began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling, and he went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved. And they came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgive, forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger. Notice the change. Handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to each of you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. Let's pray. Father, we recognize as we come to this passage, a passage on forgiveness, that it strikes quite close to home. There's none of us who have lived long in this world who have not felt the pain of being hurt by others, the struggle of forgiving, and conversely, being the ones that cause hurt, the ones in need of forgiveness. Father, we've been reminded this morning of that even greater debt that was owed than is what is owed to one another, that debt that was owed to you, a debt that we could not repay, a debt that demanded our very lives and torture and hell. Father, as we celebrated communion this morning, we're reminded of the great forgiveness that was offered at the cross. We rejoice that so many of us here this morning have experienced that forgiveness. And Father, as we look to follow your example, as we look to be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ, I pray that you would help us in rightly understanding, rightly thinking about this topic of forgiveness and rightly living it out in a world that so desperately needs to see this displayed, so desperately needs forgiveness, so desperately needs to come face to face with their sin. We pray these things in your name. Amen. It's a big text this morning. We're not going to get through all of it. And to help provide a little bit of structure around the next two weeks, we're going to take some time this morning, first and foremost, to define forgiveness. I've already used the word quite frequently, and you probably have some idea of what forgiveness means. 
Most of us do. Even children have some idea of what forgiveness means, even if they have trouble articulating it. But it'll be helpful for us to think through that definition and explore the nature and the extent of forgiveness. And then next week, the goal will be to dig deeper into the necessity, the need of forgiveness, of practicing it in our lives. And also the source of strength we are provided to be able to forgive in the way that Jesus demands. Because quite honestly, and let me say this at the forefront, trying to do what Jesus has called us to do here is impossible by ourselves. It is impossible. It's a great ideal, it's a great standard, but it is it's one that we cannot do on our own. There has to be something energizing us, motivating us, enabling us to forgive in this way. And so we don't want to just lay a burden on us, on, your, on one another, as we study this text. We want to see what is the solution? How are we to do this? If it's so impossible with ourselves, what strength has Jesus given that we might forgive in this way? So that'll be our goal over the next couple of weeks. Verse 21 brings the disciples back into focus. Jesus has been talking, talking quite a bit for the past several verses about who is the greatest in the kingdom and moving from there to those who are most needy. And then the response of fellow believers to go after, to care for, to rescue those who are most needy. That is, those in the greatest spiritual danger in the kingdom of God. And they've been listening intently to what Jesus has said. They've been listening carefully to Jesus' response to who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And what I really appreciate and what has, comes forward in Peter's question, because obviously Peter, Peter gets the short end of the stick. We pick on him, don't we? But there's actually a lot to admire about Peter. It, Peter understood from all that's been taught thus far, that the thrust, the importance of Jesus' message to the disciples and to the future assembly of believers, that is the church, in verses 15 through 20, it is not exclusively or even primarily about discipline. It is about rescue and forgiveness. Because his very first question isn't, how do we go further into this discipline process? It's, how do I go about forgiving Peter sees the importance of forgiveness in this scene. He's seen Jesus laying it out, and now he wants some clarification. Not wanting to be completely gullible or naive in this world, Peter asks a question on behalf of all of us, all who are disciples. And why do I say it's on behalf of all of us? Well, Jesus, he highlights the universal nature of Peter's question and his response down in verse 35 when he uses there, and it doesn't come across as well in our English, but that second person plural, you all, which by the way, in case you didn't know it in the Greek, is actually y'all. In this section, Peter utilizes the term forgive. And I think most of us have, like I said, an understanding of what forgive means, but it is helpful to make sure we're working from the same definition and thinking about it rightly. I'll confess that for much of my Christian life, I probably thought wrongly about forgiveness. Now, that doesn't mean everything I thought about forgiveness was wrong, but there were some important aspects of forgiveness. 
that it wasn't that I had sat down and carefully come to a conclusion that was wrong. It was just I had accepted. There's so much Christian terminology, Christian language that's used around forgiveness that begins to seep in, and we aren't thinking critically and biblically running through what does it mean? What is real forgiveness? What is, let's use this term, biblical forgiveness? And by that, how does the Bible define forgiveness? How does it illustrate it? How does it show it to us? Well, we'll start with the word itself. The word, it's, for those of you interested, it's a me in Greek. And it has the connotation, it's used not just of the idea of forgiveness, but it's, it's used of the idea of letting go, of releasing. We find it four times in this passage that we've read this morning. And has that connotation of release, let go, allow, permit something. The term can refer actually quite literally to letting go of something. For example, in Matthew 4, as Jesus is calling Peter and Andrew to be disciples, we read in Matthew 4.20, immediately they left, they released their nets and followed him. They didn't forgive their nets. They were letting go of them. It was used to describe the canceling of debt. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we read in Deuteronomy 15.2, This is the manner of remission. Every creditor shall release what he has loaned to his neighbor. Let go of it. Forgive it. He shall not exact it of his neighbor and his brother because the Lord's remission has been proclaimed. And you can see from this literal usage, this literal letting go, how the more figurative usage that spiritual connotation of forgiving the debt of sin, the language that begins to be applied toward sin and guilt. You begin to see how this applies here. How the word came to mean spiritually to be forgiven, to have that debt freed. In fact, we've seen in this parable that we read this morning that that combination of both a literal debt and forgiveness of spiritual debt. In verse 27, so he released him and forgave him the debt. Now, so far, there's really nothing controversial. There's not really anything to disagree with. Most understand that forgiveness involves a letting go. But the follow-up question is this, is that all that forgiveness entails? In other words, is it personal? Is it just on the part of the one who has to do the letting go? Or does it involve, does it require anything from the offender or the one who has sinned? And I'll show my hand a bit here, but what I believe Scripture teaches and what I wish to demonstrate is that while there are individual responsibilities, the concept of biblical forgiveness involves primarily, importantly, the concept of reconciliation, and thus it necessitates involvement by both parties. In other words, one party might do the hard work of preparing the heart. We use language like forgiving from the heart, but we need to understand what we mean by that, of preparing the heart. That is laying aside all bitterness, wrath, and anger. They may have followed the admonition of Paul in Romans 12 to never pay back evil for evil. To never take vengeance, 
but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. And he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Most of us like that last part. However, until the other person becomes involved and seeks out that forgiveness by confessing and repenting of their sin, then the full biblical description of forgiveness cannot take place. Put simply, the offender, the sinner, cannot experience forgiveness without confession and repentance. They cannot experience the full picture that we have in Scripture of what forgiveness entails simply because the other person said, I forgive you. The sinner must confess and repent. Another way of saying it is this, forgiveness cannot be affected or enjoyed by the one who sinned until they seek forgiveness through confession and repentance. I really appreciate the definition of forgiveness that Chris Bronze provides in his book, Unpacking Forgiveness. He defines forgiveness this way. Forgiveness is a commitment by the offended to pardon graciously the repentant from moral liability and to be reconciled to that person, although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. Give that one more time. Forgiveness is a commitment by the offended to pardon graciously the repentant from moral liability and to be reconciled. Again, it's a commitment to be reconciled to that person, although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. Sometimes they are. But I would say more often than not, there are ongoing consequences, whether it be time that's required to rebuild trust, whether it be the closeness of fellowship that was once enjoyed, or in some cases that you read about, it's if criminal harm was done, someone may still have to spend time in prison, even after forgiveness has been sought and given. This definition also really it helps to highlight for us two important extremes that we need to be careful to avoid. First, is thinking that if someone has sinned against me, and since they need to come and ask for repentance, for biblical forgiveness to be applied, then I somehow get to withhold forgiveness until they come and confess. That is, I can be bitter. I can seek revenge. I can exact my pound of flesh until I see their repentance. But we know this is wrong. This runs counter to everything we see about how we think and behave toward our very enemies, much less our brother and sister who has sinned against us. It runs counter to what Paul's instructions are to believers in Ephesians 4. Beginning at verse 29, he says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, by whom you have been sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander be put away from you with all malice. And then he gives the positive. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. 
So we don't get to hold on to any of those things. We don't get to sit here and say, I get to be bitter until I've seen repentance. I get to be angry until I've seen repentance. But there's another extreme to avoid, and that's the pendulum swinging the other direction, where forgiveness is cheapened by ignoring the necessity of repentance. We must be careful to avoid saying that forgiveness does not require repentance and confession of sin. Persons who err in too easily applying forgiveness or too broadly using the word forgiveness often point to passages that say, well, we must forgive as Christ forgives, right? And to which I say, absolutely. But how does Christ forgive? Does he apply forgiveness without repentance? Well, what does 1 John 1, 9 say? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Where does forgiveness begin? It begins with the confession of our sin. Now, he is sitting there faithful, righteous, ready to forgive, but it begins with confession of sin. If there is no confession and no repentance, there is no cleansing or release of sin. If forgiveness were fully realized without confession of sin, without repentance, then we would have universalism, where every single person is a Christian, and it doesn't matter what they do. So how should we think about this? Are we to hold the debt over their head until they repent and then forgive? Not at all. But nor are we to to quickly and easily use the word forgive and to so cheapen it. One of the best examples or pictures I can think of with regard to the question of what do I do then when I have this bitterness and this anger, the person hasn't come to repent, how do I, how do I work this out? How do I work with, with these emotions that I have? Because they're very real, aren't they? You've experienced them. It's painful. Well, when I've been sinned against, The answer is to go to Christ with the offense. Go to him with the burden that I feel. One, as we'll see next week, it gives us better perspective. But we're to lay it at his feet. I let go of it. I release the debt of that sin with him. And and he holds that debt in, in escrow, if you will. In other words, I no longer have it. I've given it over to him. And it's it's ready, it's ready to be released the moment that there is confession of sin. But I no longer carry that burden. I no longer carry that weight. Many years later, after this event we see in Matthew 18, Peter puts it this way. He says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. That's where we go with it. That's also why we say that forgiveness is not primarily about us. It is importantly about us and the other person and our relationship, but it is most importantly about our relationship with God. And we see that next week when we see it's all about how our master, how our Lord perceives we treat others. Go back to Matthew 6. What is the prayer there in the 
what's called the Lord's Prayer, really, as we learn, should be called the Disciples' Prayer. He's teaching the disciples how to pray. And what does he say? Forgive us our debts, our sins, our trespasses, as we what? Forgive those who trespass us. Jesus acts as the mediator. I no longer carry that debt. I'm free to go forward, forward without that weight. But the one who has sinned, the offender, still lives with that debt and that weight on their balance sheet until they confess. It's not cleared until he or she comes seeking forgiveness, repenting and confessing their sin. At that point, Jesus eliminates that debt. It removes the guilt from the offender. I declare it personally, but it's Christ who can remove the moral guilt. And I want you to notice why this is so important. Because there's a spiritual component here that ties very well into what we've looked at the past few weeks about rescuing the one caught in sin. Why is it important that I not tell a person their debt has been cleared without repentance? And you may see the answer already. Because when I do that, I run the risk of encouraging them to be hardened in their sin. If there is no repentance, no need for confession of sin, then I can stay right where I'm at. I'm perfectly fine to begin with. But as we've seen these past few weeks, they will be in severe spiritual danger if there is no change, if there is no repentance. The only path out of spiritual danger is repentance and turning from sin. Not being told, you're okay, I've already forgiven you, you can stay where you're at. If I've already forgiven you, then why do you need to repent? Why do you need to change? Why do you need to turn? Telling a person that they are forgiven where there has been no confession of sin and repentance is to cheapen the grace of God and potentially hurt the one who has sinned. Biblical forgiveness then emphasizes the responsibility both parties have in this process. The commitment to forgive by the one who has been hurt, who has been sinned against, and the necessity of repentance by the one who has done the hurting, who has sinned. But there's another question that comes into view at this point. Peter draws it out. And children, let me ask you the question here. I think you can help us with this. How many of you have a brother or a sister or maybe it's a friend who does something that bothers you and hurts your feelings? No raising hands, just think about it. How many times do you think you should forgive them for the very same thing before you no longer have to forgive them again? I mean, there has to be a limit, right? There has to be a limit to how many times they do something, do the same thing to hurt you. You know, one time, okay, that's basic. Of course we have to do it one time, but two, three? Well, see, this is the exact question that Peter wondered. What do you do with the repeat offender? And so let's look at what Jesus says is the limit of forgiveness toward the sinner, the one who keeps repeating the same sin over and over and over again against you. 
Jesus, or Peter, excuse me, reasons in verses 21 through 22 that we must surely be great and generous in our forgiveness. Again, Peter didn't get it right here. But I, don't, I want you to notice that he didn't come at this the wrong way. He, he recognized from this passage that forgiveness needed to be incredibly generous by the disciple of Jesus Christ. And so Peter in recognizing this, offers a suggestion that's, again, very generous. Even though Jesus' answer will show the inadequacy of Peter's thinking, don't miss that by humans, human standards, Peter made a great offer here. I mean, the normal human standard is what? It's one time. It's fool me once, shame on you, but fool me twice, shame on me. I mean, I'll tolerate you one time. The rabbis taught that three times was the limit of forgiving the same person or persons for the same offense. It was written in the Babylonian Talmud that if a man commits a transgression, the first, second, and third time he is forgiven. The fourth time, he is not forgiven. Which again, humanly speaking, is fairly generous. And that's patience. I mean, if they haven't stopped making the same mistake by the third time, then there's really no chance they're going to change, right? It's time for them to suffer the consequences, to learn from their mistakes. But Peter? Well, generous and magnanimous Peter here, he doubles the most generous of human estimates, and he adds one more just to reach that number of perfection, seven. Thinking surely this shows great forbearance. We know it's coming though, right? We've already read it. Verse 22, Jesus corrects this limiting of forgiveness at all as wholly inadequate. There is no limit to forgiveness, Peter. You're, you're on the right track, but you're still in the slow lane. There is no limit to the giving and the receiving of forgiveness amongst disciples, the releasing of debt, of doing good to others. This 70 times 7, which is either 77 or it's 490, there's an echo back to Genesis 424. You can turn there if you'd like. It's Lamech who goes out and murders another man. It's the second recorded murder. In scripture, probably the second murder in all of human history. Notice once it started, it sped up. Lamech, in acknowledging what has happened, he talks about man's vengeance. And he talks about the unlimited revenge here in Genesis when he says 70 times 7 in 424. Lamech's unlimited revenge here in Genesis is now transformed into a principle of forgiveness, of unlimited forgiveness. Jesus teaches that forgiveness of fellow believers in his community of little ones cannot possibly be limited by frequency or quantity. I like what one commentator said. The unlimited revenge of primitive man, looking back at Lamech, has given place to the unlimited forgiveness of disciples of Jesus Christ. 
Put another way, one commentator said, we are to be ever and always willing to forgive. Ever, always prepared to forgive. To have laid aside all bitterness, wrath, and anger. To be reaching out with that offer of forgiveness, waiting for the person to respond. Forgiveness, though, especially when we start realizing it's unlimited, sounds like hard work. And it is. And we're going to look next week at some additional help in that hard work. But I want to provide this morning a few practical things we can and probably should do in the process of forgiveness. To help make it just prepare your mind ahead of time for when this comes. Because it's hard. When the emotions get involved, it is hard to do this. So when a person comes to you, or perhaps you've gone to them, one is be gracious. I remember early on, I did a wanna, and there were words and terms you had to learn, and there was mercy and there was grace. Mercy was not getting what I deserved, and grace was a free gift I don't deserve. We don't go into it saying, well, this is what you deserve. I'll give you the bare minimum. We're to reciprocate the grace that has been given to us. Be prepared to grant forgiveness as a gift. Not because they deserve it, but because it honors the Lord. Determine that you will not demand that the other person pay some price before you forgive. If they have asked for forgiveness, if they have confessed their sin, give it wholly. Secondly, and this is just a good practice in everyday life, listen first. And also be prepared to ask for forgiveness yourself. In almost every conflict, the circumstances are complex. Be willing to ask for forgiveness yourself. This is pulling the beam out of your own eye. Especially in interpersonal conflict, when you approach another person, start by asking, have I hurt you in some way? And listen to them. Be ready to ask for forgiveness. Thirdly, don't try to determine motives. We stink at that. Take the other person at their word. Is it a little bit naive? Is there a chance that they're lying to you? Yep. Doesn't matter. Take them at their word. Our natural tendency, especially when hurt, is to distrust or doubt. But we need to take persons at their word until they clearly prove otherwise. Choose the time and place carefully. If you're going to confront someone over sin, to talk about it and have these hard conversations, remember time and place matters. Not talking about forgiveness, but a helpful reminder is Proverbs 27, 14. Every time I read this, it makes me chuckle a little bit. It's a reminder that I mean, we're to bless one another, right? Are we all on the same page? We bless one another? Well, Proverbs 24, 27, 14 says there's a wrong time to even bless one another. Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as a curse. There is a right time and a right place 
for everything. In the New Testament, maybe the more spiritual description of that is speaking words of edification that it may give grace in the time of need. And then be patient. It's possible that the other person, and we've all been here, so this is why I mean this, they do not truly know or understand the hurt they have caused. They may not be completely ignorant of the situation, but they don't realize the extent of the hurt that's been caused. You, you may have been ruminating on this for six months, and you don't understand why they haven't seen every single facet the way you do. But the reality is they, they haven't, it hadn't been simmering with them the way it has with you for days, for weeks, for months. Give them time to digest what you say and to respond appropriately. And this list is by no means exhaustive. There's probably 20 other things that many of you could bring and say that would be fit right in here. And it doesn't address every nuance of every situation. But it's a helpful starting place. And Jesus is fully aware of how difficult this task sounds to our ears, which is exactly why he provides the perspective of the parable in the following verses. But if you want to have that perspective, you're going to have to come back next week. Or you can go ahead and study ahead. I I strongly encourage spoilers if you want to go and do the study yourself. I will never discourage that. But before we close, I want you to notice one other thing here. Notice carefully where Peter went awry in these two verses. In verses 21 and 22. Because it's a place that many of us mess up. Peter thought, he genuinely thought he was being incredibly generous. Why did he think that? Because he was comparing himself to others, to other humans, to other sinners. How often do we evaluate our spirituality, our generosity, our compassion, our mercy, by measuring it against other sinners. How many times do we say, well, we've done it seven times, they've only done it once. Here we're reminded that even if we're showing seven times the kindness and forbearance of other sinners, it falls woefully, infinitely short of God's standard. You see, you will not mature. You will not grow in Christ-likeness as long as you are comparing your spirituality, your godliness, to other sinners. Stop it. It's like me thinking that I'm a great soccer player because I compare myself to the six and seven-year-olds that I coach. I am great against them. But I'd be made a laughingstock if I played against professionals. If I want to grow, if I want to mature, I need to practice with a view that is much, much larger than those around me. 
if I want to grow my faith, if I want to become more Christ-like, I need to stop comparing myself to others and instead compare myself to Christ, just as the author of Hebrews said, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, and we're to consider him, the writer of Hebrews says, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. He goes so far as to remind us, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. We're happy if we just look a little bit better than the person sitting next to us. The last thing we're thinking about is, I've got to go bleed in my fight against sin? It's also possible that you're sitting here this morning and this whole concept of forgiveness is strange and foreign to your ears. Sounds like I'm speaking a different language. You're sitting here under the wrath of God this morning. And like the sword of Damocles, eternity and hell hang above you like a fearful and crushing weight. You don't know what forgiveness is like. And if that's you this morning, I cannot let you leave without letting you know that that weight you feel, the weight of trying to fix it by yourself, trying to get out from under it yourself, of trying to escape the guilt of your sin, that that weight can be taken from you this morning. Jesus is calling to you this morning. And he's saying, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. If you want to know the rest that is found in Christ through the forgiveness of sins, then please find myself, one of the person's who was up here this morning, or one of the persons that greeted you as you came in this morning, we would love to share with you the hope and salvation and freedom that is found through Christ Jesus. And as we're going to see next week, it is experiencing that forgiveness from God that is the first necessary ingredient in being able to even forgive others, to biblically forgive others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we've been reminded of this morning. It is a high calling. Father, would we be faithful to answer that call? Help us to think rightly about forgiveness, to forgive with a whole heart, to do the hard work of preparing and tilling the soil of our hearts for forgiveness. Help us to put aside all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, malice, evil speaking, all of these things as we seek to please the Spirit, to glorify our Father, to look more like the Son. Father, we want to recognize this morning as we'll see even